Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. and have nothing. Life happens in cycles. There's a time for everything under the sun. God created the world in such a way that when it is time to plow, it is time to plow. In God's providence, that means that the time to plow is often when it's cold outside. The wise man considers beyond the immediate present and goes out into the cold knowing that it is better to suffer a little discomfort now for the reward that he will garnish. The lazy man, on the other hand, seeks immediate gratification. He wants immediate comfort, no matter how great the consequences. He says, it's cold outside. I'll go out and plow when it warms up. The problem is that procrastination has a tendency of catching up with you. If you wait too long, then you will suffer the consequences. You won't have a harvest, and you will suffer the shame of your sin. This proverb recognizes a biblical principle that doesn't change with scale. It's, It's like the parable which says, He who is faithful in little is faithful with much. Take from the wicked servant and give it to him who has ten. Procrastination is a problem for little boys in their schoolwork and chores. But if it's not dealt with then, it will become a problem later on for them in their work. The negative consequences grow, however, and so does the shame. This principle also remains true in an ultimate sense. Men procrastinate about their faith. They think that they will have a chance to repent later on. But now they want to live it up. They know that they are not right with God, but they put it off. They get comfortable in their sin as they sear their consciences till they die, and then there's no changing how they live. And then, like the rich man who begs for mercy from Abraham and Lazarus, they'll have all of eternity to beg and have nothing. Hell will be full of people who had good intentions. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Now, if you're willing to make a please kneel as we confess our sins. Solomon is telling us how to live in the midst of the vanity, that we might have the blessing of God, namely food, drink, and joy in our work. He is telling us what wisdom is. Last week he told us to work hard, despite the seeming injustices of happenstance and death, and that even when wisdom is not exercised, it is still better than folly. This week, he starts by laying out the ground rules of wisdom in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Solomon gives us an overview of wisdom and folly, and he starts in verse 1. 
dead flies putrefy the ointment, the perfumer's ointment, and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. This verse recognizes the truth that wisdom and honor, while valuable, like perfumer's ointment, and lovely, are very vulnerable. Wisdom and folly do not play on a level playing field. Wisdom has an uphill road to hoe. This means that diligence is at the core of wisdom. Because a little folly, a little folly, solely to the reputation of an otherwise good and wise man. One slip-up can ruin a career, or at least set you back a long ways. And those who are particularly respected or successful are watched the more closely. Politicians, leaders, and successful businessmen. Recently, the head of Chase Bank was in the news for losing billions of dollars in some bad trades. And despite his long track record of serving the company well and being somewhat of a golden boy on Wall Street, his reputation has taken a huge hit. And this is because of the truth in this proverb. Respect and trust are hard to earn and easy to lose. Respect and trust are hard to learn and easy, hard to earn and easy to lose. And this is because people remember mistakes, but by nature they have short memories for the blessings they receive. Everybody's happy to climb on board as long as the going is good, but as soon as a consequence of a, a little folly shows up, they're just as happy to jump ship and wag their fingers at the captain. The long and short of it is that diligence is at the core of wisdom. You must keep your head up and your eyes wide open if you want to be successful and respected and honored. You must diligently work for wisdom and shun folly. Verse 2, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. This verse is an ancient Hebrew idiom referring to the inclination of the heart. The right hand is a place of power, protection, and strength. The left is representative of weakness, capitulation, and fumbling or bumbling. And just to be clear, this, this isn't a curse on left-handed individuals. The point is that a wise man's heart is inclined in a certain direction. He is intentional in his actions. He's thinking about what he's doing, and he's purposeful in his words. He's careful about what he says and how he thinks about stuff. He doesn't waste energy or resources. Another way to look at it is that he seeks to be obedient to the commandment given to Adam to take dominion of the earth and to subdue it. That means that he's supposed to be a player in the story. He's supposed to be actively seeking God and doing his will in his life. The fool, on the other hand, is a victim of life and circumstances. He bumbles through. He doesn't keep his eyes up or his, 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 his eyes open or his head up. He's not paying attention to what's going on around him. And thus, he stumbles into all of the folly that happens in this world. He bumbles through, and it's obvious to everybody. Verse 3, even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom. 
And he shows everyone that he is a fool. In Matthew 7, Jesus illustrates these ground rules of wisdom and folly for us in the parable of the wise and foolish builders. Jesus is God, and as the embodiment of truth and right and light and revelation from God in this world, we know that the wise man's heart is inclined to Jesus. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ is that we are called to be followers and imitators of him. We are to seek after him. That's what wisdom is. And, he, and Jesus promises that if we build on his foundation, we will stand firm. We'll be able to be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. So when the storms of the world come, the house stands firm because we're, we're setting our inclination, our hearts, on Jesus. But if we do not do what he says, we're like the foolish man. And everyone will see how foolish we are when our house of cards comes tumbling down all around us. Next, Solomon teaches us about wisdom under authority. First, he says, keep your head. Verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post. For conciliation pacifies great offenses. A wise man is not reactionary. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't have a knee-jerk response to difficulty or challenge or discipline from above. He's patient, and he seeks restitution, reconciliation. He wants peace. And the first principle here is that two wrongs don't make a right. If you've done something wrong, if you've, if you've committed a great offense, if you're deserving of the ruler's displeasure, then compounding it by deserting your post makes the problem worse. On the other hand, if you have been wronged, and the ruler is the one at fault, and he's displeased with you, and you haven't even done anything wrong, deserting still makes the problem worse, inhibiting peace and, and your well-being, because two wrongs don't make a right. The second principle is that conciliation pacifies great offenses. In other words, keep your head. Be smart. Keep sticking to the job. Do what you're, you're called to do. Do what wisdom is, is to keep doing your job. Don't desert your post. Because that will enable you to speak with wisdom to the ruler. You can, you can say, look, this, this is what I'm doing. You can justify what you're doing. A soft answer pacifies great wrath. Or even if, if you fail, this is not dependent upon your guiltlessness in the situation or the scenario. Even if you've made a mistake, you can say with wisdom and a soft answer, look, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to move forward here. The verse says that great offenses are pacified. Patience and a peace-seeking demeanor will serve you well if you, want to, if you want to succeed under the ruler. Verses 5 to 7. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. Rulers are men, and men are sinners. Therefore, sometimes they make mistakes. And Solomon points here to the great folly of 
undeserved glory and undeserved shame. The undeserved dignity of folly and the lowliness of the wise, the rich, servants riding while princes walk. This can be the case for various reasons. Perhaps the friends and family of the king are fools, but he raises them because they're his friends and his family. Perhaps the advisors of the king are fools, and he's listening to bad advice. And probably in this situation, the king is under the judgment of God. The essence of the problem here is that God made the world with lots of variety. There are distinctions of quality among men. Some are princes and some are servants. Some are wise and some are fools. And the folly in this situation is that these natural and God-given things are not recognized in this ruler's realm. It's a grave injustice to reward folly and penalize wisdom. In our day, we call this folly egalitarianism. It's a hidden assumption in our culture. It drives all kinds of foolishness. It's the basis of feminism, which has ended up hurting women in the name of helping them by telling them that they're equal to men, so they should be like men. So now they have to not only keep doing the work that they were doing before, but go out and get a job and bring, bring in a paycheck too. And they come home and do all the housework also. It's what drives the socialism in our government, which is trying more and more to take from those who have and give to those who don't, regardless of whether it's been wisely and, and diligently achieved or, or whether it's been wickedly achieved. Regardless of, of the willingness of the people that benefit, of their, of their willingness to work, or their foolishness in how they use the goods that they receive. Now, don't get me wrong, egalitarianism is not all bad, because as far as it makes things equal that are equal, in reality, it's a good thing. But the problem is where it honors fools, and it penalizes good, honest, and hard-working, wise men. And further, egalitarianism is prone to corruption, as wonderfully illustrated in George Orwell's prophetic allegory, Animal Farm. He had his pigs who, who said they, the, the animals on the farm revolted against the men, and they, they said that we're going to set up a, a new rule where everybody's equal. But what happened over the course of time is the corruption of this leadership. And the pigs rose to the top. And eventually they, they took their, their, their commandments, which said that all animals are, are equal. And it morphed into all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And by which they justify all sorts of shenanigans and wickedness and evil. Egalitarianism in general is bad. And that said, the princes walking and the servants riding are still, respectively, princes and servants. They suffer un under this, the princes especially suffer under this injustice and evil, and the country is not blessed by this state of things. However, no reason to get all uptight about this. Remember, keep your head. History is a story, and the history of the world has a strong motive of the servant king. In God's stories, he loves to take the slaves and the servants and the outcasts and make them into rulers. 
Abraham was a wanderer. He left Ur of the Chaldees. He wandered across the Middle East, and yet God made him the father of our faith. Joseph was a prince. A prince. He was, he was Jacob's chosen and beloved son. Yet his brothers made him into a slave. And God was telling a story. And, and that slave rose to become the ruler in Egypt. The Israelites in Egypt were slaves. And God allowed them to plunder their captors after a humiliating Pharaoh and his gods. Because in history, God is telling a story. Some men are princes and some men are slaves. In essence. And even when those things aren't reflected in the reality, ultimately... All men answered to God. David was just a boy when he was anointed king, and he was an outlaw, and on the outs with Saul for years before God gave him the promise that he, he had given to him made, and made him the king of Israel. Jesus was a poor carpenter from Galilee, and he walked among the poor and the outcasts. He was murdered like a criminal. And he submitted to the rulers, and God has made him Lord of heaven and earth. He's, earth. he's, the, he's the archetype. He is, he is the, the, the picture of what it is to be a servant king. The apostles walked in his footsteps. They were, they were killed by the, by, by the Romans and the Jews. They, but they walked in Jesus' footsteps, and they were princes and kings, and they have a crown of glory waiting for them. And by their work, work, and by their words, the whole world was converted because of the wisdom with which they exercised God's work for them in the world. Christians in Rome, reformers under the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, the list goes on and on and on. God loves the story of the servant, invisible king to the world. But he's telling a story, and it's because he wants the glory. The point is that, in reality, princes are princes, whether they are princes in the world or whether they're being treated like slaves. God makes princes princes because God made the world with princes. They tend toward leadership. They overcome challenges. Their wisdom is visible, and the blessing of God is on them, and it's apparent to everyone. When Joseph was a slave, Potiphar saw his wisdom and gave him more authority and more authority until he was ruling all over, over all of Potiphar's house. And even then, he suffered injustice and was thrown back in jail. And God took him from jail and made him the ruler of the whole nation. Wisdom is visible, and the blessing of God is apparent. The truth resonates with men. God, working in people's lives, is visible, and that resonates with men. And they will follow a godly prince. And sometimes it takes a reformation from the status quo. Sometimes princes walk and servants ride. And that means in order for things to become right, a reformation needs to take place. Something needs to happen. God needs to intervene in the story. That's what God does. 
And that will happen. What happens, when that happens, the reason that that, that folly is destroyed is, is when it comes to maturity. That happens when the folly of the establishment is manifest and mature. When it's so obvious to everybody with, with two eyes in their head that what's going on is unjust and wicked, that's when God turns the table. It's like when with the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and God told them that the time wasn't ready for them to go into Canaan because the, the sin of the Amorites had not been completed yet. It had not matured. It's because God is a merciful God and he gives men time and time and chance after chance after chance to repent of their sin. But it's difficult to live in a world under foolish rulers. But Jesus gives us instructions for this. Matthew 10, 16-20 Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Don't be surprised when you run into injustice. Don't be surprised when you run into sin or inequity in the world. Be wise as serpents. Know how they think. Recognize what's going on in their head. And sidestep it as much as you can. But not by playing dirty. You must remain innocent. You must be harmless as doves. You are there to bring life, not to destroy. Not to bring death. Be, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men. For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Here were princes. Here were the apostles. And here were princes walking. Here were princes suffering. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. You are, Jesus is telling us our job is not to worry about the injustice that's being done to us. Our job is to witness the truth, the, to witness Jesus Christ and his work in the world. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. That's the answer. We must empty ourselves of ourselves. We must be humble. We must eliminate our pride. If Jesus, God in the flesh, could die, if he could allow Pilate to sentence him to death, when he could have called down legions of angels and had Pilate destroyed, who am I? If they're gonna if they're gonna give me some difficulty, count it all joy when you encounter various tri trials. Peter rejoiced when he suffered in Acts. He rejoiced because he was work, doing Christ's work in the world. It was that little bit that he could pay back for all that Christ had done for him. He witnessed, and he was bold about it. The truth resonates with men, and men know injustice when they see it. Even when they're the ones exercising it. Pilate knew he was in the wrong. Jesus witnessed to Pilate what the truth was. So what Jesus instructs us is that we must have faith. The wisdom that is for us in this scenario, when we are suffering in the world, 
is that we must trust in God. We don't need to worry about what to do or what to say. God will take care of that. Faith teaches us patience and wisdom, and wisdom keeps its head. Wisdom remembers somebody else is writing this story. Somebody else is in control. Not that ruler. He's under authority too. God is in heaven, and he is in control in our situations. Next, Solomon tells us about wisdom and work. First, he gives us four examples of danger inherent in work. These examples display what happens to a fool if he doesn't pay attention to what he's doing. They're a warning. Verses 8 and 9. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits wood may be endangered by it. The message of these two verses is that wisdom recognizes and watches out for the danger inherent in the work that we do. This is not a justification not to work. This isn't saying, there's a lion in the streets, I must go back to bed. That's, that's what the lazy fool says. You know, I might get in a car accident on the way to work, I'd better stay in bed, it's safer there. That's not what he's saying. Solomon is not arguing that we shouldn't go to work because work is dangerous. Everywhere so far we've been exhorted to work and to work hard, to put our back into it. But these are an exhortation to learn first that when we work, we must work with wisdom because work is dangerous. Life is not safe. Work is dangerous. We must learn. Wisdom teaches that work is dangerous. The world is full of danger. Second, the danger of work depends on the nature of the work. A gutter cleaner doesn't have to worry about paper cuts, but he must be careful not to fall down from his ladder. A baker doesn't have to worry about falling down from the ladder, but he has to watch out for making bad and bad investments. A tractor driver doesn't have to worry about the bad investments, but he has to worry about not getting run over. A commuter must be careful of other drivers and driving conditions. A secretary has to watch out for paper cuts. Third, a wise man will see the danger and keep his eyes open and his head up. In this case, a little folly. Remember what we read earlier? A little folly can make a wise man, it can, it can cause a wise man's uh, reputation to suffer. In this case, a little folly can mean the loss of your job, the loss of an eye, the loss of a limb, or even of your life. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. Stones quarried can hurt the, 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 the worker. So, be careful when you work. Keep your eyes open to the danger that's inherent in that. Next, the preacher gives us an exhortation about wisdom and skill and success. Verse 10. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then you must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. This is pretty straightforward. Tools need to be maintained. This verse teaches the principle that it is wiser to work smarter, not harder. 
It's a lot easier to cut the wood with a sharp axe. It may mean that you have to know, it doesn't mean that you have to be working with an axe. That's, that's the example he used here, but it's a metaphor. It's, 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 a, it's applicable everywhere. A wise man knows his tools and he knows how to maintain them. So in whatever work you're doing, tools make your work more efficient. It doesn't have to be an axe. It may mean that you know when to change the tires or the oil in your car so that the car lasts longer. It may mean that you know which parameters need to be checked on your computer program to get the results you want. It may mean that you know who to talk to or which permits to get for the construction project you're working on. But there's a ditch on the other side of the road here, too. There's a kind of laziness that will waste time trying to build a better mousetrap when the existing one works just fine. There's, there's a kind of mindset that says, okay, I've got this job to do, and it'll waste the whole day trying to figure out a more efficient way of doing it, and the job never gets done. That's laziness. The essence of the principle is that wisdom brings success. The job gets done. God expects us to work and to work wisely. Sometimes it means that you have to do it the old-fashioned way. You can't get a tractor in there, so you have to use a shovel. That's okay. Get the job done. Make sure your shovel's sharp. To shift gears a little bit, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about the work he has done. Starting with verses 9 to 10. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, and you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another builds on it, but let each one take heed how, heed how he builds on it. The fellow workers Paul's talking about is Paul and Cephas and Apollos. There's, this is in the context of an argument about how the Corinthians need to be united and not divided. But he says, we are all working on the same project. We are all building God's house. This isn't about me. This isn't about Paulus. This isn't about Cephas. So Paul and Apollos and Cephas are the fellow workers, and the Corinthian church was the building that they were building. Now notice Paul's comparison of himself to a wise master builder. He laid the foundation. He understood how things are to be built, and he started at the ground level. That's the first thing you do, is you lay the foundation. He founded the church in Christ, in Corinth. He founded the church. He came there, he was a witness of the gospel, a witness of Jesus Christ. He said, you must believe and be baptized. He made Christians there. He founded the church. And he built that on the foundation, and this is the foundation. Because he warns everybody that they must be careful. Let each one take heed how he builds on it. Verse 11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We must be careful not to do anything that is not Jesus Christ. It's, it's anything that's incompatible with the foundation that we're building on. Remember, the wise man's heart is inclined toward Jesus Christ. And this is absolutely necessary because wisdom brings success. Verses 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. This passage is talking about the ultimate success or failure of the work we do in this world. I mean, Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he's talking about life in general, work, workforce, etc. But that is applicable to Christians and our work in the world, the, the building of the kingdom of God. If we are to work and work hard, and if this world is vain, then only what's done for Christ will last. Wisdom is having an inclination towards Jesus Christ. It's building God's building. Wisdom is building the kingdom of God. And there are better and worse ways to do that. We can do that with skill. Wisdom brings success. Or we can attempt to do it with folly. But if we do that, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Obviously, Jesus and Solomon would have us build with gold, silver, and precious stones. But regardless, however we work, it will be clear and revealed by fire. It's clear who the, the fools and the wise are in this world. Fools wear their foolishness on their sleeve, and the wise are known by their reputation. The question is then, how is it possible for us to truly work with wisdom and skill in this vaporous world? And the answer is that we can't do it on our own. We need Christ's Spirit. Verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And with His Spirit, we can do all things. And all things are given to us. And this is the glorious promise and blessing of Pentecost. God sent His Spirit so that we can live and succeed in living eternal life in this passing world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.
Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.